All right, good morning again. And again, it is good to uh, be back. Uh, with that being said, I'll just give you a heads up. There's a lot of ground for us to cover as we begin a new series, or I guess a new part of our series through Samuel and Keynes. Uh, so let's go ahead and start with prayer. Father, we come before you seeking wisdom this morning. We ask that your spirit would shape us, mold us, that you would help us to be focused and attentive this morning. Uh, protect us from any distractions or any worries or concerns, anything that might cause us to um, not listen, to be elsewhere. Help us to be here this morning to hear your word. Help us be edified by your word so that we would be equipped and sanctified so that we would give you glory in all that you would do and that your kingdom would advance, Father. We ask this for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So go ahead and open up to 1 Kings. Um, as you turn there, I will give you some background information on 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, first and second Kings, and by the way, I'll probably just refer to both of them as Kings uh, for short. Uh, Kings covers 400 years, uh, starting in about 970 BC and going to about 586 BC uh, when the temple is destroyed and Judah goes into exile. Compare this with first and second Samuel, which started during the period of Judges with Samuel's birth about 1105 BC and ending near the end of David's death around 970 B.C. So that's a span of 135 years. Now clearly the time span of kings is going to cover a variety of events as well as a multitude of kings, both good and bad. It will cover the building of Solomon's temple, which occurs around 966 to 959 B.C. It will cover the split of Israel into two kingdoms, the north and the south. It covers the deportation of the northern kingdom, that's Israel, into exile by Assyria in 722 B.C., followed by the exile and the two deportations of Judah, uh, the first deportation happening in 598-597 B.C., followed by the second and final deportation of Judah in 587-586 B.C., which at that time also the temple was destroyed, and that is by the hands of Babylon. The major and minor prophet books, all of them are written during this time period of which Keynes covers. So as we go through this, we will cover uh, the time spans and the events, the context, so to speak, of which most of the Old Testament was written. So the implication there is to properly understand the prophets, understanding First and Second Kings is crucial. So as we go through this, through these books, it will help us to understand the prophets. It will also help us to understand the kind of king the kind of Messiah that Israel was anticipating and the need for Israel to have a Messiah to show up as king after king, descendant of David after descendant of David, would rise and fail at fulfilling the Davidic covenant. The books of First and Second Kings are similar to Samuel. Um, as such, some have argued for one author between the two or at least one compiler of sources. Hence, this is why, like when you look at the end of 2 Samuel and when we get into 1 Kings, the connection, the transition, it's really smooth. And this is often the argument for a similar author. And clearly, based on the time span alone, the events as recorded in the books of Samuel and Kings are recorded by multiple authors. And then someone or a group later compiled them, did some editing, and smoothed it out. Beyond the time span, there are other reasons for this. And some will become apparent as we work through uh, the text. 
But one obvious reason is the end of the verse of 1 Kings 8, verse 8, where it states, they are there to this day. In that verse, this is a reference that uh, refers to the temple. Yet at the end of 2 Kings, the temple is destroyed. Then in 1 Kings 9.21, we have the same statement which speaks of a situation that cannot exist during the period of the exile. And 1 and 2 Kings were not always separated as 1 and 2 Kings. They were at one point one book. So most likely, whoever compiled or authored Kings did so using historical sources and references and thus cited some of the information exactly as it was recorded originally. Contextually speaking, Kings is similar to Samuel as it tends to focus on theological narratives more than the book of Chronicles, right? The book of Chronicles, as we saw when we went through Samuel, it's a chronicle. It's a historical account, much more uh, focused on details and facts than theological narratives. Uh, though Kings does tend to be more historical than Samuel, as the events in Kings are in chronological order, whereas in Samuel, not every event was in chronological order, uh, the difference between Kings and Samuel um, isn't enough to make Kings more like Chronicles. Kings still has a theological purpose, it still has theological uh, teaching, hence why some of the events are really just summed up briefly and succinctly in the book. In regard to these themes of Kings, Kings takes us through the establishment of the Davidic dynasty with the rise of Solomon and shows us time and time again the failure of David's descendants. It shows us the idolatry of God's people and the constant and persistent threat false teaching and how blessing and prosperity regularly become a snare for God's people. Now, now that we have the brief introduction of Kings in the rearview mirror, let's dive into our first passage of 1 Kings, and that will be chapter 1. In this chapter, we are shown two paths, and this is the refrain of Scripture. The world wants you to think that there are many paths, many ways to take. Just as many paths, they, they, the world believes that there are just as many paths as there, as there are shades of gray. Righteousness or the wide path of worldliness, which includes every conceivable way that the world can think of that lacks Jesus Christ. Time and time again, scriptures and the people to avoid to help us stay on the right path that leads to eternal life. That we need to avoid, one that is marked by three things we are to be weary of, and we are three things, but these three things we are to embrace. So let us begin first by reading the first four verses and understanding the context of which these two paths are presented. So 1 Kings 1 through 4. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. So David here is literally on his deathbed, and yet he is still reigning. So we know him to be 70 years old. Uh, recall 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5, verse 4, where it tells us that David was 30 years old when he began reigning, and he reigned for 40 years. So you just do the math, and he's about 70 years old. 
But 70 typically isn't old enough to lay most people up in bed without some pre-existing condition. But in David's case, his situation is probably more, not so much about the years, but more about the mileage. I mean, consider the stress, consider the wear and tear of his being on the run by Saul, all the fighting that he's done. Uh, I mean, just read the Psalms. He clearly experienced stress. He experienced depression, anxiety. He had a very stressful life. And as many of us know, stress creates toxins within the body. It wears on the body. It causes the body to break down faster than it ought to. So David here, he's in such a bad state, he can't keep himself warm. This once powerful and energetic man is now so feeble and impotent, he can't get his blood going to the point where he can keep himself warm, even with blankets. In verse 4, in reference to the young lady they acquired for David, it mentions he knew her not. And that's an Old Testament way of saying that David did not have sex with this young lady. Now, that bit of information, it is important for chapter 2, as we will see uh, next week, but it is important here as well. Verses 1 through 4 are meant to highlight how old, how weak, this king, this mighty king, this mighty warrior, King David, who slayed Goliath, how weak he has become, and thus opening the door of opportunity for what follows. And doing so by showing the impotence of the king, that is his lack of ability in bed, for a man who had many wives, and one of his great sins was, in fact, because of his, what he wanted to do in bed, it reveals to the reader how far David has fallen in his strength. This understanding of the intention of verse 4 has been the accepted view historically until recently when modern-day scholars, many of which have tried to attempt to sanitize the scriptures of sexual references. But if you are unable to accept the view of verse 4 as being a sexual reference, the point remains David is weak and he is no longer the strong, independent king that he once was. Now, let's read verses 5 and 10. Let's see this first path that's born out of David's situation of him being weak and impotent and consider the three things we ought to avoid. Verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shemai, and Rai, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside in Rogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men of Solomon, or Solomon, his brother. So here we have many familiar faces, familiar names from the books of Samuel. And so Samuel helps us already to understand who these people are and what we're um, dealing with here. But in this text, we have three things to be wary of. And the first is, be wary of people who exalt themselves. In verse 5, who exalted Adonijah? He did. No prophet or seer like Samuel or Gad or Nathan selected him. He selected himself. In doing so, he is breaking tradition. He is paving his own way. Both Saul and David, even Saul who was a bad king, 
Both of them were selected by a prophet's ministry. They were selected by Yahweh himself. But not Adonijah. He selected himself. As such, he is like his older brother Absalom. Look at the second part of verse 5, and as you look at that second part, I am going to read 2 Samuel 15, 1, which is written in regard to Absalom. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. So who got Absalom these chariots, horses, and men? Absalom did. No one gave them to him. He prepared it for himself. These are the same words that I used here in verse 5 for Adonijah. He gathered things on his own for his own purpose and his own glory. And as we recall, when we did talk about 2 Samuel 15, we know that by gathering horses and chariots, Absalom's clearly going against the word of God. No king was supposed to gather these things, but Absalom, as Adonijah is doing here, is trying to look like a king of the other nations. He's trying to appease the ways of the world. Adonijah is a man, like his brother Absalom, attempting to rise to a role, a position that he's not called to by God. In doing so, he has despised the word of God because he knows his brother Solomon is to, be ta- is to be king in accordance to the will of God, as affirmed by David later in our passage this morning. And it's why Solomon wasn't invited. Adonijah knew. And Adonijah, like his brother Absalom, is seeking the throne not by the ways of Scripture, but by the ways of man, trusting in the horses and chariots, not in Yahweh, not in the ancient texts. So Adonijah, in his self-exaltation, not only despises God's word, but he also despises fellowship. That is, the fellowship and the accountability of those who are faithful to Yahweh and the Lord's anointed King David. Adonijah excluded the faithful, those who chose the narrow path, because instead he would rather have those who are loyal to him, those who have chosen the path of worldliness to his feast, because he knows these people are going to support him. He goes with those who are faithful, he knows he's going to be held to account. There's going to be a reckoning to be had. So he invites all these people to come to his feast, and it's full of people more interested in satisfying their appetites than being faithful. People who cheerfully, ignorantly, and arrogantly jaunt down the wide path of the world, paying no attention to where it leads. These are the people of Romans 16, 18 that Paul warns us to watch for. Paul writes, For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. There are many in the church today who do likewise, who exalt themselves to fill pulpits that they have not been called to fill. They do so uh, to satisfy their own appetites. They do so essentially for their own gain, and it's done out of pride. And you can recognize them in the same way that we recognize Adonijah, by the way they treat the Word of God and how they interact with the fellowship of the faithful. If a pastor or anyone ignores the clear and plain teaching of Scripture, that's a red flag. Right? This doesn't mean that they just simply make a, they say something wrong and then you correct them about it and they respond faithfully in that. But even in correction, they refuse the correction. Right? They, they refuse the rebuke. They do this, it's a red flag. It's a flag that marks them to be like Absalom, like Adonijah. And we ought to flee them. If a pastor or anyone refuses to be involved with the body of Christ and refuses to respond to encouragement and correction on the matter, flee from them. They refuse fellowship because they know the fellowship will call them out. The fellowship will call them to account. 
If you look at pastors who ignore the word of God in their teaching, look to the congregants and you will see the same thing. They also will ignore the word of God because how can they sit there faithfully week in, week out and listen to the garbage that's being preached from the pulpits? Those loyal to Adonijah didn't care for the word of God. That is, if they even knew what the word of God was. All they cared about was their fleshly appetites. They cared about the smooth talk and the flattery words. They didn't want conviction. They didn't want holiness. All they wanted was the merry feast. They just wanted to drink and be married. They wanted their desires to be satisfied. These men we are to stay away from, away from these pastors, those who exalt themselves and those who surround themselves with people who are yes-men to them. If a pastor has an elder board that's full of yes-men and elders who never disagree with them, that is concerning. That's a red flag. Especially a pastor who has no elder board. A pastor who may be sitting or overseeing a church and has no other accountability because he is the head honcho, that's concerning. All right? And no pastor is the Lord's anointed, right? You'll hear that term often, don't touch the Lord's anointed, as we talked about in Samuel. That's not, we, we have a fallible process in selecting pastors who are selecting fallible people. So the pastor is a fallible person. If they are in sin, if they are disqualified to fill the pulpit, it needs to be dealt with. There are, no prophet has come to Hope Community Church and said, Trevor is to be, you know, God hasn't spoken and, and made me his anointed one. That's not how it works in the new covenant. So pastors are called to have elders. We should have a plurality of leadership for accountability. Men who don't, pastors who don't, they despise faithful accountability. They prefer smooth talk. They prefer flattery over faithfulness. Stay away from pastors who preach only on topics that are easy or desirable. Cowards who avoid the whole counsel of God's word. Men who take the word of God and twist it for their own gain, for their own exaltation. This is what Adonijah has done, and we'll talk more about this in a bit. The second thing we are to be wary of is cultural expectations. That is what the world expects. In other words, prioritizing culture or the world before God. Adonijah was David's oldest surviving child at this point in David's life. Amnon, his firstborn, was murdered by Absalom. Daniel, the secondborn, as we know of in 1 Chronicles 3, uh, we hear nothing about, so presumably he, he died uh, perhaps relatively young or in infancy or as a child. Absalom was killed by, as we know, by Joab, which left Adonijah as the next heir apparent. And Adonijah is described in our text as a handsome man, just again like his older brother Absalom was. Adonijah, like King Saul, looked like a king of the world, like a king of the other nations. And since he was next in line, the world would say he ought to be king. Look at, look at him. He looks like a king. He's the oldest surviving child in David's line. Therefore, he is the heir to the throne. But simply because this is how the world views it does not mean it is in accordance to the will of God. Solomon was promised the throne, not Adonijah. Nathan mentions this later in verse 13 in our passage. And in 1 Chronicles 22, 9, uh, it's, it's stated there explicitly. Behold, this is God speaking. Behold, a son will be born to you, meaning he hasn't been born yet, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. 
This is a promise that at the time of its utterance, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, all of them were still alive. Thus a promise that directly bypassed all three of them, not to mention the other sons who were born ahead of Solomon. And yes, Adonijah was aware of this, as such as also was Nathan and Solomon, which is, again, why Adonijah did not invite them and the other faithful ones to the feast. Because he knew they knew that what he was doing went against what God has promised. But again, Adonijah does not care for God's word. This is similar to the argument for women as pastors. The argument made by those for women to preach and to fill the role of pastors, it cannot and does not faithfully begin in Scripture. Genesis to Revelation is clear on this, that the role of an elder, that is a pastor, right? We need to understand that pastor, elder, they are one and the same. They are not two distinct offices. In the New Testament, a pastor is an elder. And in the context, again, context is always important. In the context of the local church, the headship must be male. Now, if you have questions on this, and you ought to have questions on this topic, just don't ever blindly believe anything. Like, have questions, ask the questions, dive into Scripture. But I did a full message on this topic uh, where I go through Genesis and Revelation. Um, I did this message on September 13th of last year. You can look it up on our a podcast called Complementarianism or Egalitarianism. And if you want, uh, you can check out this book called God's Design for Man and Woman by Andreas Kostenberger and his wife Margaret Kostenberger, which is excellent on the topic. He charitably and gracefully deals with, uh, I think, just about every objection, every text that speaks to the matter, and he deals with the gray areas. There are some uh, gray areas, but in the areas that aren't gray, uh, he does a very good job of dealing with that in a very charitable way. So I would encourage you uh, to read that. But briefly, let me deal with one common objection. Uh, like some would say, well, what about the woman at the tomb? Isn't that an example of preaching or pastoring? No, it's not. Because again, the context. It's not the local church. Jesus is also not commanding the woman to have authority over uh, the apostles. It is an event, uh, an example of witnessing, right? And sharing the good news. Yes. And all men and women are, are to do this. Women can absolutely ought to witness to God's grace and power. But the church is to be led by those who lead the households. How can a woman uh, have authority over a husband when Scripture is clear that the husband is to have authority over her wife? And good biblical complementarianism is not oppressive. It's meant to nourish and uplift and encourage the women of the church. It's meant to be a blessing when the men faithfully serve and fulfill that role. Just because the world perverts it and uses it in ways that are ungodly does not mean that we do away with the whole system. Again, if you have questions on that, please, let's talk. And you ought to have questions if you are unsure in that because it's a topic in society today. And we're here to equip one another, to disciple one another, to walk together on these, on these issues, especially the ones that people sometimes don't want to talk about. Nowadays, many exalt themselves or others to positions that they have no place being in in accordance to the Word of God, but they do so because of the culture today, along with the idea that giftedness equals calling. But being gifted does not equal calling, right? Just because you're gifted at something does not mean you are called to do it. Nor does gifting equal righteousness. Not that it can't point to a calling or that your giftedness can be used for righteousness, but it is not a trump card. 
Right? There are many variables at play, and we need to take them all into consideration. Essentially, though, we are called to deny ourselves. So often, what we want to do, what our passion is, quite often isn't what God is calling us to. Think of the people God has called to in service through Scripture. Most of them had no desire to do what God called them to. Moses was not gifted, nor did he have the desire to go back to Egypt. Right? Prime example. And Paul, he was gifted at killing Christians. And then God calls him not to kill them anymore. So be mindful of that. And there are ways that we can use our gifts within the prescribed roles of the church under the umbrella of God's authority. You can call yourself to a position. You can surround yourself with those associated with such a position. You can act like the position and even do that position well. But if you are not called, you are not called. We see churches embrace the expectations of culture and society today while abandoning the faith in God when they embrace the LGBTQ LGBTQ plus lifestyle as acceptable as God. They say, this is good. God loves them too. Or consider a person who continues to enslave themselves to porn on the computer, thinking, well, everyone does it. It's the 21st century. This is just how it is in our day and age. But anytime anyone or any church tries to minimize sin or excuse it, regardless of the sin, right? Any sin. We have the hot, hot button sins, but even the quiet ones, gluttony, sloth, you know, being lazy, being apathetic, we can't excuse any of these. And anytime a church does, be wary of it. God does not whisper about any sin. Or anything, for that matters, because he is holy. When he speaks, God thunders. Adonijah, he prioritized the culture before God, also by marrying religion with the world. He has Abiathar, the high priest, with him, and he joined the two together. Anytime compromise is made by the church to the world, it is an act of unfaithfulness. It cannot happen, period. It is an act of treason. Scripture is clear on the matter. Friendliness in any manner towards the ways of the world is hostility towards God. James 4.4, you adulterous people, that is, you who are unfaithful, you who are faithless, you do not know that, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hostility with God, treason. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Good intentions do not equal holiness. Many people, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. And that's, that's the danger of false teaching. Because often the false teaching that deceives us is good intentions. It means well. It's done in love. And so we, we follow. We want to follow because it's, we, we think, oh, well, this is, intent, this is good intentions. But if it's not holy, it's, it's not holy. We must not be like the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, at their conference last month when they constantly kept bringing up the refrain, the world is watching and it regularly came up as a way as to how they ought to do things, how they ought to operate, without the, without the consideration that it's God is watching. Yes, the world is watching, but it's more important that we recognize that God is watching. To minimize God as the utmost priority compromises our faith. And we best love the world, our enemy, when we are most faithful to God, our King, and our Savior. This is how we witness to his glory the best. 
God does call us to testify to the world on his behalf, to testify about his power, his grace, his mercy, his love for those who are hostile to him. But if we make the concerns of his enemies, make the concerns of the world a priority over and above the concerns of God, we lose it. We lose the testimony. But if God's concerns are our priority over and above the world's, then the world will see who our God is. And that is exactly what the world needs to see. The third thing to be wary of are those who forsake the authority and power of our king. Adonijah acted this way for his king was impotent and on his deathbed. Also, David as a father never corrected Adonijah, a pattern that as we've seen with Absalom and his other sons, David just never did. David never expressed his displeasure towards him. He never rebuked him. We all should know, especially those of us who have children, children need rebuking regularly, often. It's frustrating how often children need rebuking. But all people, even grown-ups, we need rebuking. It's frustrating how often we ourselves need rebuking. But Adonijah, he did not understand authority, thus he forsook it. He did not submit himself to it, at least not until his life was at stake, as we will see at the end of our passage. We must be careful not to slip into the mindset that, that since we don't see Jesus himself walking the streets as Adonijah did not see his king walking, we must not think that Jesus cannot rebuke us or that as he tarries in returning that he is apathetic to how we live. We must not think the Lord's power is restricted or ineffectual for today. We must not assume that his word of old is no longer sufficient or no longer authoritative. That would open the door for us to act in all sort of sinful ways. Since the argument for uh, women pastors or homosexual lifestyle, if we pull this one thread of scripture as, well, it no longer applies to us today, well, you keep, you're going to keep pulling that thread until all of scripture comes unbinded and you lose the person of Jesus Christ, and eventually that means you lose your salvation. God sees and God knows are all. We would be wise to heed the words of 2 Corinthians 5.10, where Paul writes, we must all, that's everybody, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That includes believers and unbelievers, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. A truth that those who walk down this wide path of worldliness, they often forget this. And even if they pretend to remember sooner or later, their true nature will reveal it. You wait long enough, you follow somebody long enough, you wait for something like a pandemic or society to put pressure on the person, and the character will reveal itself. Therefore, we ought to be wise in how we ourselves live. And in that process, we must be wise in whom we follow and whom we allow to influence us. Therefore, with these three things, let us consider uh, what we ought to do to avoid following the Adonijahs of today. Do they exalt themselves? Do they despise the word of God as something insufficient, not authoritative? Do they despise fellowship with members of the body of Christ? Do they prioritize the world before God? Do they rationalize their behavior and concerns of this age, of this culture we live in, more so than God's word? Do they forsake the authority and power of our King Jesus? Now, in order to help us in discerning the answers on these matters, we are given three things on the path of righteousness that help us stay on the righteous path and avoid the path of worldliness. Let us read the rest of the chapter and then wrap up briefly with those three things, starting in verse 11. 
Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Donajah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fat and cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass, when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fat and cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by, by my lord the king? And you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground, paid homage to the king, and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, their anointing king over Israel, then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Static the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Keon. There, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard, heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, 
what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites, and the Pelathites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet, have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord, King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose, went, and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Verse 12 in these many verses ought to stick out to us. Nathan has come to Bathsheba and has warned her to let him give her advice, to give her counsel in order to save her life. For the situation that she and her son and others are in is a perilous one. When Satan or the world seeks to tempt us to go astray, which they seek to do every single day, every single moment, whether they do that by how we act or getting us to be apathetic, we must be discerning. Let us know how we ought to live, how we ought to act, how we ought to respond so that we may save our souls from destruction from the clutches of hell. This is a teaching echoed by Jesus in Revelation 3.11 where Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. In order to hold fast to something, you must know what it is. So you must understand it and you must be aware and you must be discerning of what to avoid so you don't let go of what you're holding fast to. Otherwise, they may seize your crown. Now, we don't do this in our own power. We need to be clear on this. We do this purely in the power of Christ. He's the one who saves. He's the one who delivers. He guides our steps to keep us from going down this path. But we must know the path that he has marked out for us to avoid the worldly path. And if we are in him, we are going to want to know this. And in this passage, we see three things that if we embrace them, we, we will find ourselves upon the straight and narrow path that he calls us to walk upon. The first thing that we are to embrace is our king. Just as Nathan, Bathsheba, Benaiah, and the others stayed with King David and turned to King David, so must we. We must trust Christ. We must trust Jesus with all of our hearts. Proverbs 3, 5, 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, right? Yeah, well, it feels right to me. Don't trust it. Trust in the Lord. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. This is the basic requirement of our faith. To be a follower, to exhibit faith in Christ, is to trust him in all our ways, fully and wholly. Consider the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 34. 
Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For a person to deny themselves wholly and to follow Jesus is to trust him. You're not going to follow him if you don't trust him. And you need to trust him to follow him for where he's going. Because where did Jesus go? Calvary. He went to the cross. And why did he go there? Because the world killed him. So we need to recognize that when Jesus, you're going to follow me, the world's going to hate you. So you need to trust me. You need to deny yourself. To endure this pain, the suffering, the rejection, the calamities of this world, and to be faithful to Christ, we must trust him. We must embrace Christ as our Lord and King. And we embrace no one else and nothing else, not even our families. Christ is our object of affection. He is our supreme focus of love and worship and service and faithfulness, nothing else. Now, we can love our families. We ought to love our families, but not more than Christ. It is through Christ that we love our families, that we love others, and we love them best when we do that through Christ. We don't neglect them. Christ is first. They're involved, but only through Christ, who is our object of affection and devotion, are they best loved. We don't raise families above Christ, or we're not going to love them as well as we ought to. By embracing Christ, we understand that death is more welcoming than acting unfaithfully to him. We must not be foolish to think we can embrace Christ as our king and somehow find a way to be friends with the world. If we think we can, then we do not know our king. We do not know Jesus Christ. We do not understand his holiness, nor do we understand our sin. And in this endeavor, to know our king, to embrace Christ as our king, we must seek his will and we must go to him. We must pray. Consider the advice Nathan gave Bathsheba. To whom was she to go? To her king, to King David. He was still alive. He was still reigning. David could still speak and respond to Adonijah's rebellious actions. Likewise, we ought to go to our king with our concerns, with our temptations, with our problems, and with the threats of the world because he is king. He has power and authority to deal with it. So let us beseech the wisdom the mercy of Jesus Christ in prayer. Let us throw down before his feet the things that weigh on us, the things that give us worry and anxiety. Let us put to him our doubts, our concerns. Let us go to him first and foremost rather than all these self-help books and all these other methods for our self-esteem and good uh, self-care. Let's go to him first. Not that those things are ever useless. But Christ ought to be our primary source. Allow our tears to not fall upon the harshness, the coldness of this earth, but upon his feet as we lay before him in supplication. How can we find counsel to save ourselves if we never go to the one who can give it? So as we embrace our king, we do so by trusting him in all things, in all ways, in all matters, and we do that in part by going to him in prayer. Right? If you're not going to him in prayer, do you trust him? If you knew that Jesus can handle it all, you would go to him on everything. So go to him on everything. You say, if you struggle with prayer and you claim to trust Jesus, pray to Christ, make me a man, make me a woman of prayer. Help me pray to you, help me go to you more. On all things, no matter how, don't ever think something's small to God. All right, don't ever do that. Nothing is small to God because nothing's big to him. Go to him on all things. It is better to over-communicate than to under-communicate to our Lord and Savior. Second thing we are to embrace is our kingdom. 
More specifically, his kingdom, our king's kingdom. In doing so, we must have fellowship. That is, we must trust one another. How can we have fellowship, though, if there is no trust? Why would I desire to be corrected, rebuked, or even encouraged by you if I don't trust you? It's not that we are to trust one another as much as we trust our king, right? Clearly, because we are sinful, fallible people. But we trust each other with the expectation that since you and I have both been adopted by the Father and brought into his kingdom by the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, who is our king, and in our trust, our embrace as, of Christ as our king, that you and I, in that reality, we will continually seek the good of the other in all things, though we may do it imperfectly from time to time. And we may do it to where we hurt each other from time to time. But we exist as new creations, and not new creations not only for his glory, but for each other. In fact, God, as we've mentioned before, he gets glory by how we love one another. For we are known as his by how we love each other, right? John 13, 35, by all this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And oftentimes the best way we show this love is when after I've been imperfect and looking out for you, we reconcile because of what Christ has done for us. This is a love that Jesus said earlier in John 13 must be the same way that he loved his disciples. That is a love of service, sacrifice, humility, and faithfulness to the glory of the Father for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will gather and serve with those whom we typically do not get along with. If we look around this church, even here I hope, we have difference in opinions, we have difference in personalities. I'm a Patriots fan, a Red Sox fan, so I know what winning is about. Well, you guys got the bucks, so I mean, that's something. But we have differences, see? You can feel the tension in the room already. And we will struggle at times to tolerate each other, right? You will struggle my comments on those matters. But we do so out of love for one another. And this love is not rooted in the other person. It's not rooted in who I am or who you are or what we can do or cannot do for each other or what we have or have not done for each other. It's rooted in Jesus Christ. It's rooted in our King remembering that we may struggle to love each other, because we will, right? Let's be honest. We're not always going to love each other. You're going you're gonna to wake up on some Sundays, but I don't want to see those people. Or I don't want to go to life group. Or I don't want to go to prayer. Or I don't want to go to this fellowship thing, because so-and-so is going to be there. Or whatever the reason may be. But that's not why we love each other. We, we, we struggle because of what Christ has done for us. Christ does not struggle to love us. And each one of us who believes in him, we have his spirit dwelling within us. So he gives us what we, can, what we need to love others because we have his spirit, his power, his love within us. So we strive, we yearn to love each other because we are part of his kingdom, we are part of his body, and we are part of his bride. You will love the groom best if you love his bride well. And we love because as First John tells us, because he first loved us. If you struggle to love somebody here in the church, well, stop thinking about them. Think of Christ and see Christ in them. See his bride in them, and you will love them. 
This trust of each other does not seek to isolate certain people or groups from the body. When we embrace the kingdom, we do not act as Adonijah did and surround ourselves only with those who agree with us. And that's our natural tendency, right? Well, this person disagrees with me or this person has this political view or this view and, and we just can't agree on it. Well, so what? Look at the New Testament. Look at the early church. All the epistles were written because the new church couldn't get along. They had issues, and Paul kept reminding them. What were they constantly reminded of? Who they were, what Christ has done for them. We're going to have diversity of opinions. We're going to have arguments on matters that in eternity don't matter. But that's okay. We need to come to the table regularly, the gospel regularly, and be reminded of who we are. We must make sure that we don't keep those who will rebuke us and correct us away from us. Sometimes people who rebuke us and who are willing to correct us are those who love us best. We surround ourselves with everyone who is part of the kingdom. And this is why church membership in our day and age, especially in our culture, is so important. How do we know who is part of the kingdom? And we can't be perfect at this, right? The wheat and the tares, they're going to be among us. But we can do something. And in a culture and a society where people are constantly moving around in America and where you have religious freedom, you can say you're a Christian and not be a Christian, uh, we need to set up a fence, a gate, some type of method to identify those who seek to be part of the body that they are faithful to Scripture. And that's why we value church membership here at Hope so much. In a third world country where life does the winnowing, so to speak, you don't need a formal church membership. Life will take care of it for yourself. But here, where you don't have persecution, you can claim anything, it helps to have a statement of faith. We help to have an agreement on what that means and, and how we do church and what the Word of God means. So today at our congregational meeting, we will affirm new members. And by doing so, the elders are saying to the rest of the members of the church, we can trust these people. You can trust them. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, welcome them, pray for them, embrace them, love them, do life with them. So, we're able to embrace one another as we are called to by God only with humility. My mouth is out of shape from two weeks off. And when we seek to exalt our king and his bride. Essentially, when we seek the good of the kingdom. You cannot glorify the king by rejecting his kingdom. Right? To, To give praise to the groom, you don't spit on the bride. You exalt the bride. You Give praise to the groom when you exalt the bride. Like, wow, this is your what? This is the one you're marrying? This is fantastic. You show faithfulness to the groom by how you treat the bride. So how we trust one another, how we love one another is a reflection of how we love and trust our king. Our king's kingdom does not advance because we are so great or special. It advances by his name, by his glory alone. And we are able to partake of that glory best when he increases and we decrease when i seek to lift up my brothers and sisters in christ before myself no self-exaltation is welcomed in the kingdom period romans 12 10 paul says love one another brotherly affection outdo one another with showing honor i mean when you wake up when you came to church today were you thinking how am i going to outdo everybody like it's a competition who am i going to outdo today in honor by serving them That's the mindset Paul is saying that we ought to have. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you must first be a servant. You must serve others. This is Jesus' teaching back in John 13. And think about that. Jesus, our king, is washing his disciples' feet. He's washing the dirty feet of his servants. Or go to the cross where our king died for us. 
He died for his enemies. He died for those who have committed treason against him and his sovereign rule. He died for them so that we may eat at his table. So let us be wise and consider in light of our Lord's life and death, what can another brother or sister in Christ do to us to cause us to stop loving them? The third and final thing we must embrace, and if we don't embrace this, the other two cannot be done. We must embrace the king's decrees. In order for that to happen, we must know what he has spoken. Consider the information the prophet Nathan reminded Bathsheba about in regard to who would be the heir to the throne. Absent that information, both Nathan and Bathsheba would not know how to act. Likewise, if we are not in the word of God on a regular basis, how can we know? How can we hold fast? How can we be discerning? This is where devotions fail. Imagine if Adonijah wrote a devotion. Are you thinking Adonijah's devotion, he would have mentioned the parts of Scripture that spoke of God promising that Solomon would be king? Of course not. And this is, I'm not saying we do away of devotions, but the devotion is not the meal. It's like the bread that comes to you at Texas Roadhouse before you eat. That's all it is. It's tasty, but it's not a meal. God's word is the meal, and we need the whole counsel of God's word. Because apart from his word, his will cannot be known. And thus we will not be sanctified, for we will not be on the narrow path. Our king, when he prayed to his father in John 17, prayed specifically that his people would be sanctified. And he was explicit in how that happens. John 17, 17. That's an easy reference to remember. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Well, what's truth? Your word is truth. When people say, well, what's truth? God's word is, it's, it's right there. And it's Jesus Christ. We are sanctified. We are made holy. We are set apart, made righteous by his word. You cannot simply love your way to righteousness. Right? Love is a motive. It doesn't tell you how to live. You can, there's a lot of things that people love that you're not supposed to. I mean, look at kids. They'll tell you they love something, but how many times do you tell them, No right? And we love food too much. It's destructive. There are many sins that our natural selves love. It doesn't lead to righteousness. Love is a motive, not a way of life. But of course, please not mishear me, our sanctification must include love, right? If you don't have love, you're not going to be sanctified. But love by itself does not lead to sanctification. You need love and truth. You need both of them, and you need to be willing to obey that truth. It's not that obedience saves, but the desire to be obedient is evidence of the new life. It is evidence of the power of Christ within us. We must not be like Adonijah and presume our king to be weak and powerless. Simply because Jesus has gone to be with the Father and we may think he has delayed on his return, we must not think his power and authority do not stretch to us now. He has gone away so that his spirit, the power of creation, right, just ponder that for a moment, may dwell within us to guide us, to teach us in accordance to his word, to his will, so that we would be sealed for all eternity as his. So let us not be like the foolish virgins of Matthew 25 who were not ready when the bridegroom returned, for they did not take enough oil with them. We must not think that we could simply gather enough knowledge of Christ that we think may be enough for our salvation, yet not enough to lead to our sanctification. See, we need all of it. Those who are justified will be sanctified because only the sanctified will enter into the kingdom. Justification 
needs the sanctification. They go together. They are, they, you, can't, you won't have one without the other. We are saved for a purpose. We are saved to something, not simply from something. And this is the will of the Father. And as Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, only those who do the will of the Father enter into the kingdom. So we must trust his divinely revealed will, his word, and all things for all time until he returns and we see him face to face in the fullness of his glory. So now, with these things behind us, we now come to the table to remind ourselves of who we are about, how we ought to live, and to remind ourselves the decrees, the promises of Christ for what he has promised to do when he returns, that he will judge the righteous and the unrighteous, those who follow the Adonijahs of the world and those who follow him. So let us come to the table on the basis of his grace. Let us be encouraged to live holy lives on the narrow path that the world hates, that the world rejects, that's marked out for us by his word as we embrace him, Jesus Christ, as the Lord, Savior, and King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for allowing us to read of this story, to hear of how Adonijah tried to overrule your word and try to take the throne for himself. Help us to be wise and discerning in the scriptures. Help the spirit, help us to uh, respond appropriately to this word and that the spirit would convict us um, as necessary. Help us in our discerning, or in our discernment, Father. Help us to be wise to whom we listen to, whom we follow. Help us to love each other uh, faithfully as we embrace your son as our Lord and Savior. And Father, we thank you uh, that from the beginning of time you ordained that he would come and he would redeem us and that he would save us, not simply uh, from hell, Father, but for your glory and for us to know you all the more, for you are everlasting life. Father, we ask that you'd bless the elements before us, the cracker and the juice, that they would edify us, that they would be gifts of nourishment to us uh, this morning. Father, as we come and prepare ourselves to come to this table, help us to confess all the sins. Bring to mind whatever uh, we might need to confess to you, Father, even, even the things that we are ignorant of. Uh, and if we hold on to anything, Father, help us to abstain. Help us to deal with it. Help us to have the courage uh, to go to another brother and sister in Christ and say, hey, I, I need help with this. I need, uh, I need some accountability in this regard, Father. But as we confess our sins, Father, Help us to come. Help us to experience. Help us to understand that it is finished upon the cross. And that regardless of the sins this past week, we have confessed, we have repented of those sins, that we can come to this table, we can taste the goodness of the gospel, and may it stick with us the rest of this week. And may it guide us in how we live, Father. Help us to be the powerful, mighty witnesses you call us to be. May your spirit, may your word fill us completely this morning. May we come back to the well daily, and may we continue to drink of your truth every day so that we can be the light that you call us to be, the salt of the earth that you call us to be, so that your name would be known, that you would be glorified, and many who are lost will be found, many who are blind will see, Father, by your grace, by your power, for your glory. Father, we ask these things for your glory and the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.